my f- best memory of music anywhere in my life, and if my wife were to hear me say this, she would probably contradict me because we have very different musical tastes. But I was on an assignment in South Africa, and we needed an Adventist choir or an Adventist music group of musicians singing music in one of the townships. And so Ray Dabrowski and I and Dave and one of our, you know, our video crew, we all went over to Soweto to a gymnasium where Sabbath afternoon they said there might be some people singing. When we arrived, there were a couple of hundred folks and they had just started to sing. And by the time, that was around two o'clock. And by the time we left, about seven, there were about 600 people. And I'm not sure anybody had taken a breath during that time. I mean, it was marvelous. One person would stand up and start singing from way in the back somewhere, and everybody would join. And then when that song was over, an old man over here would stand up and start singing. And the next thing you know, there were four kids over here with with clarinets, and they'd stand up and start playing, and everybody would sing along. Hour after hour after hour of just plain celebration. When your heart is connected with God through music, it is a moment of incredible blessing. It's just overwhelming. When um, Joel was awakened by the dream, he was terrified. Because Joel never had dreams. But that night, he had a dream. And it was a dream that was just plain weird. A voice came to him and said, Joel, yes, you know that vacant lot across from your house? Yeah, so, who are you? Why do you care? I am going to build a church on that vacant land, and it will be God's true church. Boom, the dream was over. Joel is sitting square up in bed in the little village of El Shaddai, Chile. And he pokes his wife, Trinidad, and says, Trinidad, tuvo un sueño. Hay un milagro que pasará allá. Right across the street. And this voice says, I am going to build a church in the vacant lot across the street from you. And it's going to be God's true church. Isn't that exciting, Trinidad? Joel... You are loco. I don't know what you had for supper. I know what I had, but I don't know what you had that was weird. That is the weirdest thing I've ever heard in the world. Have you seen that vacant lot? That is the worst lot. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of buses. In fact, I counted buses one day. There are over a hundred buses that go by that corner every single day. And there's no room for a church. It's got broken old bones and concrete, and it's an ugly place. No one would ever want to build a church there. Why, there's graffiti on the dirt. Go to sleep and don't ever talk to me about that again. I don't ever want to hear that again. And she rolled over and ignored it. So he didn't talk about it anymore. In fact, he forgot about it. He just didn't even think about it anymore. Why would I want to think about something that just makes my wife mad? That'd be crazy. So he doesn't know what to do with this. A year and a half go by. And one day, Joel is at a meeting, a seminar, where there are lots of people in a big building somewhere near Chiyan, Chile. 
And there is a speaker from Argentina. He's never met him. He doesn't know anything about the guy. But the guy shows up, and halfway through one of his presentations during the weekend, the man stops, scratches his head, looks around, and says, I have a message for someone here. Is there someone here by the name of Joel? Joel Vasquez. Is there anyone here by that name? And Joel goes, Yeah, I'm, I'm Joel Vasquez. You are? Is there a vacant lot across from your house? Yeah. Well, I have a message for you from God. God says He is going to build a church on the vacant lot, and it's going to be His true church, and He wants you to protect the land. There. That's cared for. Hey, Joel, God bless you. And then they moved on with the seminar. That was the only thing he remembers from the weekend. As soon as he got home, he ran over to Trinidad and he said, Trinidad, you're not going to believe what happened to me in the seminar. I was in the middle of the seminar. The guy was talking about all the stuff we'd gone there to learn. And he stopped and he said, I have a message for Joel Vasquez. Is this about the land? He knew about it. Honey, it's exactly what the dream was. He told me the dream, but he added something. Yeah, what? What he added was, I was supposed to take care of the land and protect it for at the church. Joel, I love you. You're the best race driver I know, and you know how to fix everybody's cars, and you've got cars stretched from one end of our house to the other, and all of the rest of that. But you know, and, and I love you, and I love our kids, and all the rest, but don't ever talk to me about that again! So he didn't. He didn't do anything. Six months later, it's now two years since the first dream. Six months later, the dream came again. Joel? No. <laughs> Joel? Yes. The vacant lot? Yes, I was afraid of that. I am going to build a church on that vacant lot. It will be God's true church, and I want you to be sure that nothing else gets put on that lot. You're in charge. Boom! Dream over. So he leaned over... I don't think so. <laughs> In the morning, he started looking for the dueño of the lot, for the person who actually owned the lot. And he found the person, and he went over to their house, and he said, You know, I'd, I'd like to buy that lot. And the guy laughed and said, I'm not about to sell that lot. Nobody would want it anyway. It's an absolute garbage piece of land. It's, it's useless. And Joel told him about the dream, explained it, and the guy laughed and said, I'll make sure. I'm going to sell that lot to somebody else. I'll put a sign up on it today. So he did. He put a sign up for sale. Nobody made an offer. A year went by. The sign is still up. The man has actually put, you know, together, they put a little chain link fence around it. For sale, for sale, for sale. It screams at every bus that goes by. It screams at every person who comes near. Nobody even asks about the price. One day, Joel goes back to the dueño and says, uh, You want to sell? No. How much? And it took a while. They actually settled on a rental agreement. He would let Joel take care of the property until it sold. So Joel 
burnished the fence, made sure there was a lock, got it all cared for so nobody would mess with church land. And his wife said, so what's, how come you're over there by that vacant lot all the time? Oh, I'm just checking. You're still thinking about that church, aren't you? About that time, Nelson woke up in the middle of the night. Now, when Nelson woke up, it was a little bit different. The, the dream that Nelson got was this. Nelson? Yes, my Lord. Nelson is a committed Seventh-day Adventist layman who only has one dream in life, and that is to somehow advance the coming of Christ. This is all he wants to do. He read someplace that if I tell others and give my whole life to communicating the coming of Jesus Christ and help people be ready that Jesus might be able to come sooner and maybe he can come while I'm alive and Nelson is so excited and eager to make that happen. Now Nelson runs a computer repair business. And Nelson doesn't have a lot of time to go and do evangelism or anything. But the dream said, Nelson, yes, my Lord, I need you to go to the village of El Shaddai. And I want you to hold an evangelistic campaign. But, Master, that's completely on the, uh, that's way away from my house. It would take two hours for me to get there every day. I know. We'll talk on the way. Dream over. So Nelson pokes his wife and says, God has asked us to do an evangelistic campaign at El Shaddai. It's about two hours away, a little tiny town down by the mountains. And his wife said, that's so exciting. How will we keep the business going? I don't know. I don't know. Well, if God wants us there, it's God's business. And they went back to sleep, neither ignoring the other. So you've got this dual challenge happening in two homes. One that is totally involved with God, one that is totally uninvolved with God. So Nelson goes down to El Shaddai. He begins going door to door, talking to people about God, talking to people about holding an evangelistic campaign. And he sees a vacant lot, not the vacant lot, but a vacant lot. Now, it's an ugly little lot, but it's big enough that he can put a carpa there. He can, he can put a tent and hold evangelistic series. And he, Nelson's a good preacher, and so he's ready to do this. And so he gets a bunch of flyers printed up, and he gets them all perfect, and he gets his hammer and his nails, and he goes around and he starts nailing the uh, advertisements up on all of the telephone poles in the area. Wham, 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 wham. He gets to the telephone pole right next to the lot where he is going to hold the evangelistic campaign, a lot he has rented for one month to do evangelism. And as he nails it on, the telephone pole falls over into the man's yard. And the man comes out, and the man is a paralyzed man living in a wheelchair. And he comes out, and he begins cursing old Nelson. What are you, an idiot? Why can't you get... And it just this is not a nice thing. If you saw this on television, you would fast forward. Nelson listened, and when Jose was finished, he said, I'm sorry. Well, somebody ought to be sorry around here. And Jose starts taking his wheelchair back into his house. And Nelson says, 
But excuse me, sir, right next door to your house, we're going to hold a, a campaña del evangelismo. We're going to be talking about Jesus Christ and explaining how Él viene enseguida a su vida. He's coming because He likes you. And Joel, I mean, Jose says, nobody likes me. Not even my wife. Not even my dogs. <laughs> and he goes back into his house. So the next night is the first night for the evangelistic campaign. And as the evangelistic campaign begins, all the music, and they've got a problem with the PA. They can't make it soft. So everything that happens in the evangelistic campaign next door is loud. And not only the people in the tent can hear, because there's about 50 people in the tent. Jose can hear. So in the morning... After refusing to ever go to an evangelistic campaign. What a stupid thing. Why would I ever want to go do that? Jose goes back in his house, angry. Nelson comes to his house about an hour before the campaign and says, you know, would it be okay? Would you like to come in tonight? Yes. You would. Why? Because I want to see the faces of the people who make so much noise. So at the end of the campaign, Nelson baptizes Jose, who says, I don't want to be the man I used to be. I want to be a new guy. I want to be somebody people like. Can you help me with that? It seems like that's something God would like. And so Nelson and Jose and all of the new members, and there's about 28 of them now who've decided to be Seventh-day Adventist Christians, they get uh, time for baptism, and Jose says, I want to be baptized in the river. Everybody else was baptized in, this, in the swimming pool down the road. I want to be baptized in the river. Well, you know, you do what the paralyzed guy says he wants to do. And so they go down to the river, and they get to the edge of the river, and Jose says, all right, you can roll me in on my chair, but I'm walking out. And Nelson said, okay, this one's yours. And they get out into the river, and the wheelchair is now almost covered with water. And Nelson says, may I help you stand up? No. Jose stands up at his wheelchair. He says, get that thing out of here. So they move the wheelchair. And it's now Nelson and Jose. And Nelson baptizes Jose, pulls him back up out of the water, and Jose walks out of the river on his own. Now, the part of this story that amazed me when I asked Jose, how did you feel that day? He said, oh, mi corazón fue lleno de amor. My heart was full of love. And his wife said, for the first time. <laughs> now, Jose, when I was there, Jose, the first time, Jose was still using his wheelchair. But he wasn't sitting in it. No, no, no. If, if you're going to go from here to there, you get the wheelchair because it's the most wonderful movable walker on earth. Because, because then whenever you arrive where you're going, all you do is you spin the wheelchair around and you sit down. And you got this neat portable seat that's better than all everybody else's seats. And he's into good chairs. I asked his wife, is Jose any different today than he used to be? Oh, mijo, she said, I have a husband. 
like I dreamed I might have. So all this is going on. And down the street, Joel has missed it. Oh, he knows something's happening. He knows the Jose, Jose the, the paralyzed dude, is walking, pushing his wheelchair. And he thinks, yeah, that's nice. That's good of him. But he's got a lot of work to do. He's got to run his auto repair business in the back of his house. But there's a problem with the New Adventist community. It's now three years and eight months since the first dream. Okay? There are 28 members in the church. There's no place for them to meet. They've got to find a place. And so Jose, Nelson, and the members kneel down and pray, God, where do you want us to have a church? Nelson stood up and said, Does anybody know anything about that vacant lot on the corner? Yeah, it's an ugly place. We never want a church there. Who, would, who might know? Well, I don't know. He might ask Joel. He's pretty good. He, he lives right across the street from it. He might know what's going on with the lot. And so Nelson walked up and knocked on Joel's door. Here's what he said. <laughs> Hi there. My name is Nelson. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, and we've been working here on this little church that you may know about. You know, Jose is a member and several of the others. Um, we need to build a church. And we're wondering if you know anything about the vacant lot across from your house. What do you want to do there? We want to build a church. You don't sound like him. Huh? Oh, that's all right. Uh, What kind of a church? Seventh-day Adventist. What's that? Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, we do. Do you believe in the Bible? Yes, we do. Show me what you believe. Have you ever had anybody ask you to give Bible studies like that? Show me what you believe. And Nelson said, well, you know, I'd love to. I can come in right now. I I can give you 30 minutes now. And what if I come over, oh, maybe each evening for the next four or five and and let's study the Bible together? I'd like that. Can you make it an hour? And so Nelson came in and uh, Joel said, Trinidad? This man's name is Nelson. He's here with the, what did you say it was? The Seventh-day Adventist. Adventistas del Septimo Día. What's that? It's a church. Why is he here? He wants to build a church on the vacant lot. (laughs) He's here to study the Bible with me, to show me what they believe. You want to come? No. Okay, we'll be in the living room. Okay. So Nelson and Joel studied scripture for two weeks while Trinidad listened through the kitchen door (laughs) but never showed up. It's hard for me to know what part of the story to give you next. I've spent a lot of time at El Shaddai. And I've fallen in love with these people. So I'm going to go to Nelson. They buy the land. Because Joel says he wants to be a Seventh-day Adventist and he would like church to be right there. 
I go and I, I walk the land with them. Daryl, our Maranatha representative from that area, is there. We check the land. We look at the dirt. We kick it a little bit. And Daryl says, this is awful. We cannot build here. It's got to have all of this stuff up, torn up, and it's got to have seven dump truck loads of fill dirt put on this land before we can even consider putting a church on it. And if we're going to do it because of our schedule and everything, we got two weeks, uh, two weeks max, we got to be ready to put a foundation in here so we can get a volunteer team down here to build this thing. And Nelson said, no problem. Well, what I didn't know is that when Nelson said no problem, he lied. <laughs> if he were a good Adventist, he would have said, there is no way we can do that. But he was a conference treasurer like John Corder. <laughs> where he knows miracles happen all the time. So don't get in God's way. And the next thing you know, they bought the land. The little Adventist group bought the land. And in addition to bought the land, they went to the conference president and said... We're going to need some money to get the ground ready so Maranatha can put the church there. How much do you need? Well, we need $1,000 right now just to be able to prepare the place. Will that get you everything you need? No, it won't. We still have to buy seven dump truck loads of fill dirt and have them delivered, and then we need to spread them out. Huh. Well, let me tell you something. And called the treasurer in. The conference treasurer and the conference president and Nelson are sitting there together. And the treasurer says, I received a letter, this letter yesterday, from someone in the United States I've never met. And it came to me personally at the, at the conference office. And in it is a check for $1,000 to be used for the new El Shaddai church that no one knows is being built. And Nelson said, okay, no problem. <laughs> so they go back. They do all the work they can possibly do, but they still need seven dump truck loads of fill dirt delivered for free. And so Nelson is on his way over to prayer meeting in El Shaddai. It takes two hours. His business, by the way, he got a contract that was so odd that he was able to do it in half the time and earn more than double what he would normally earn. Giving him time to do evangelism and build a church at El Shaddai. Guy is one happy camper. And so he's busy doing his work, but now he's got to go to prayer meeting. It's Wednesday night. And he's driving to prayer meeting all the way the two hours. He gets all the way almost there. And God says, turn left at the next corner. And Nelson says, I can't turn left at the next corner. If I turn left at the next corner, I'm going to be late for prayer meeting. And you've been telling me for years, be on time. Don't be late. And if, I, if I'm going to turn, I'm going to be late. And the prayer people are waiting for me at prayer meeting. I got the key. I'm the only one who can get them into that little rented room. And there's just an on and on and on and on and on. Turn left at the next exit. Well, exit. Corner. I mean, this is, there's no exits here. You've been long gone on the exit when you get to El Shaddai. And Nelson said, I will not. I have to go on. And when he got to the corner, the voice said, Now, left! 
And Nelson went, now, left, and made a quick swerve to the left and practically ran into a dump truck. He stopped. The dump truck stopped. Nelson got out of the car and said, I'm really sorry. And the guy said, you are a blankety blank, blank, blank. And they're having this big, nasty war. And Nelson climbs up on the side of the dump truck and says, excuse me, sir, I'm sorry. Well, you ought to be. What's wrong with you anyway? Sir, my name's Nelson. I work with the Seventh-day Adventist Church in the area. You know where Joel's house is? Oh, yeah, he fixes all my trucks. Well, you know that vacant lot right across from here? Yeah, he takes the big cigar out. What what is going to happen in that vacant lot? You know? Yes, sir, we're going to build a Seventh-day Adventist church. A who? A Seventh-day Adventist church. You guys believe in Jesus? We believe in Jesus and Jesus only as the way of salvation. All right, so what do you need? Sir, we need seven loads of fill dirt, good fill dirt that we can smooth out and we can actually put a foundation. We're going to build a church on that lot. And we've got a group of volunteers coming from the United States who are going to be here now in a week. Oh my, less than a week. And we've got to get this all done first. Do you know, we don't have any money. All we got is a need. Can you help us? Seven loads right away. Free. Well, I have a problem in my business right now. I get about seven loads of fill dirt that have got to get off of a land, and I don't know where to put them. Is it okay if I start in the morning? And in the morning, Nelson and Jose and Joel... Trinidad's watching from the kitchen. All are there as the dump trucks start coming in. All seven. And they're working on getting it all leveled and ready. And Daryl shows up with his crew and they put a foundation down and they build a church. And the next time I show up, I'm down in Chile. And I looked at Daryl and I said, I want to go by El Shaddai. And he said, good. The church is almost finished. It needs a roof. Other than that, most of the bricks are up. And I go over to the baptistry, and I take with me three people. Nelson, Joel, and Trinidad. <laughs> There's no fence anymore. It, it, everything has changed. You know, this, this is cool. And we go into this little church, and there... You're just only getting the surface of this story. I take Trinidad over to the baptistry, and I say, Trinidad, I want you to tell me what this baptistry means to you. And Trinidad grabs my hands and says, Pastor Dick, I'll tell you what this baptistry means to me. We have 21 family members with our children, grandchildren, sons-in-law and daughters-in-law. 21. Already, four have been baptized, including, well, not Joel. Joel just is a believer. But Joel and I have decided that the day the baptistry gets his first water, we will be in it. But I need to tell you, my dream is for all 21 to be in this baptistry. For me, Es como, it's like the door to heaven. 
And I want my whole family to walk through so that when Jesus comes, our house will be filled with praise. What do you think? There's a part of the story that really bothers me. Why did God start working on Joel four years before the church? So I asked Joel that question. Here's his answer. God needed me to be ready when the time came to lay the bricks, to buy the land, to put down the dirt. And in all honesty, Pastor Dick, it took four years for my heart to get warm. It took longer than that for Trinidad. But once the fire started, she is blazing. <laughs> How long has God been working on you? About something. I don't know what it is. God works on each of us about something very personal. For Joel, it was a vacant lot. And God talked to him often about the vacant lot. What's God talking to you about? In um, 1969, 1970, I don't remember. That was too long ago to remember anyway. My wife and I worked at a summer camp in Southern California. She was the nurse. B.J. Christensen and I ran the camp along with the help of the conference youth director who wasn't around much, Des Cummings, because our uh, youth director died the first week of camp. Had a heart attack and was gone. Built up. So it was Des and Dick and B.J. trying to run this camp. And all of us had been around camps, but this was our first time really responsible. And a third of the way through the summer camping season... Oh, it hadn't been raining. This is Pine Springs Ranch, Southeastern California Conference, up in the mountains of the San Jacintos, which are dry when it rains. But now it's really dry. Well, the local fire department came over, looked at us and said, you can't run camp next week. And we said, why? And he took me and BJ up to the tank, it's a 10,000-gallon tank lying on its side, steel. If you put your hand at the top, it's hot, 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 until you get all the way down about six inches from the bottom where it gets cold because there's water in the tank. He says, you don't have enough water to pump to cover the problems of the bathrooms for two days of 208 year olds that were coming that next day. They were coming next week. And he said, you can't have camp. I'm sorry. So we went into prayer mode. We had a vacant week with nobody in camp. 
We did everything we could dream. We prayed to God. We pled with God. We begged God. We told Him it was time to reign. We got out the book Preparation for the Final Crisis by Fernando Chai. We read everything there was about the second coming, about the, the, the last day events, about... We, we started worrying about the time of trouble, the little time of trouble, Jacob's time of trouble, Leah's time of trouble, Uncle Bill's time of trouble. You know, we, we, had, we had charts on every wall trying to figure out what was coming when and where we were fitting right now. We read Matthew 24 until, our, until we wore the red off of our words. And we kept saying, God... You know, our job in this world is to teach people about you, right? Help us. And God was silent, absolutely stone dry silent. And the granite of Pine Springs stayed dry. And the six inches was down to two. Fire department was right. It's time to shut down the camp. On Wednesday, Mayor Judson was, was our... Charge of horses. If you're going to be in charge of horses, mayor is a pretty good name. <laughs> mayor was in charge of the horses, and she was taking a horse into Idlewild. And as she came over a hill, she saw a pickup truck and a horse trailer on fire. She pulled off to the side really quick, helped the girl get her horse out of the trailer, shifted the horse into our trailer, and, and took care of the girl. I'll call her Cindy. She was a Mormon girl. She came back to join us for the rest of the summer. And she listened to our conversations about rain, about water, about God, about prayer. She read and reread Matthew 24 with us. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of sky with power and great glory. He will send His angels with a loud trumpet. So when you see the abomination of desolation, so if anyone tells you there He is, go out in the desert. This is pretty dry here. Maybe, no, don't go there. And it, we read every word again and again and again. And we were afraid because we might not be ready for His return. And the sense of what was going on at PSR that week was fear in the face of God's promised return. Saturday night, no water. We were shut down. But Des and I and BJ had decided not to call the parents. We still had buses coming up the next morning. There was something in our heart that said, have the plans for camp don't change. If you need to send everybody home Sunday, that would be better than stopping them now. Saturday night, we're in the cafeteria. And we're having a prayer service. It was really a wine service. We were whining at God for not doing what we thought He ought to do when He ought to do it. We, we were saying, how come you don't make it rain? What kind of a God are you? You sent us down here to do this and now you take away our ability to do it. How does that make any sense? And we were having a really nasty conversation with God. And it was all one-sided. Until Cindy stood up. She said, I don't know much about you guys. I've listened to you for three days. It's Sabbath night. And I've been listening to you again. And you make me sick. Everything you've told me is that you believe in a God of love. Whose great goal 
in the universe is to fill his house with people who love him. Do you think he'd want any of you? You're sitting around here whining because he doesn't do stuff the way you want him to. You wanted him to send rain. What if he didn't want to send rain? What if he wanted to send 400 tanker trucks? What if instead of the coming through the way you want him to come through, he's got a better idea? You haven't given him a chance to do that. You've just been afraid that you won't be ready. Well, let me tell you how to get ready. Get out of this stupid cafeteria. Go out there and talk to him. Give your hearts to him so that he can give his best to you. Go be Adventist if that's who you are. We all went out <laughs> very quietly. I remember standing in the prayer group that kind of developed. It was BJ and Judy, Dick and Brenda, and Des and Mary Lou. And we prayed. I don't remember much about the prayers, they were very short and quick and quiet. And then the women left. Des and BJ and I were standing there under the moon talking quietly about nothing. And all of a sudden, I heard a scream. I will never forget that moment, ever. Because it was my brother's voice. My brother was a camp counselor that summer. He... And a fellow you may know, Donald Livesey. <laughs> they were running two cabins for me up on the hill. And it was Jack's voice. And we'd been having trouble with pumas, panthers, mountain lions, whatever you want to call them. And what he was screaming was lion, lion. Well, I, I didn't even have a rifle accessible we figured we'd have to throw rocks, but we know the stories of mountain lions in the idle wild San Jacinto Mountains. They're not nice. And so all of us began sprinting to where we could hear Jack's voice. I was ahead of them. And as I got closer, I could identify what he was saying. And he was not saying lion. He was saying water. When I found him, he was standing at the tank, a 10,000-gallon tank that two hours before I had checked, and there was less than two inches at the bottom. There was water pouring out of the tank from the top. The overflow valve, it was just pouring. It was ice-cold, clear mountain water. And Jack was standing there with it just pouring down over his face. And next to him was Don Lipsy with water just pouring down over their faces. And I ran to the intake valves because I knew how they were set. And I put my hand on them and they were hot. Steel valves. If cold water were running through those, they would be cold. They were hot. Idle wild. California mountain hot, dry. I touched the intake pipes, hot. I touched the tank, 
cold all the way to the top. That tank flowed pure water until the rains came that summer. Before my brother died, he died at 29 as pastor of the Indio Palm Springs Adventist Churches as a cancer victim. He held my hand one day and he said, Dick, we got to be in heaven. We got to meet the angel who put the, the pump in the tank, <laughs> who put the spring in the tank. You know, I've never been afraid of God since that night. There's no reason to be afraid. I've listened to preachers recently tell me I ought to be afraid. I ought to be so terrified about what's going on in the world. I read the Pope's encyclicals and I know that the end of the world is coming and any minute now we're all going to be running for the mountains where of course no one will be able to find us unless they have GPS and predator drones. I'm not afraid of anything anymore. And I want to give you two verses why. The first is found in Matthew 24, verse 22. In the middle of all the red words in Matthew 24, Jesus says, If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. One version reads it this way. I've given you a long list of things to look forward to. Don't trust my list. Because if all of this happened, there wouldn't be anybody left for us to save. But because we're interested in filling heaven with people who want to be there, we're going to cut it all short at the very moment when the most people will be ready and eager to fill the most rooms in our house. Is that a fair translation? It's what it says. And so the next time somebody tells you, you need to worry about this, you need to be hurried, you, you, need, to be, uh, uh, you need to be terrified, you need to be fearful, you need to be, just look at them and say, no, 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 no. I want to take you to, re- to Matthew 24, 22, where it says, in the midst of all of these wonderful charts, bam, God's going to cut it all short. And what's going to happen then? Ah, Daniel 12, 1. Turn over there with me. Daniel 12, verse 1. You want to know what happens when God cuts it short? It's right here. Daniel 12, 1. It's the most amazing verse about how to feel in the end times. Here it is. At that time, when? When everything's fallen apart. At that time, Michael, when the Pope prints an encyclical that says, I think we ought to have one world order that cares for the economies of everybody. How cool is that? I mean, I've already had people tell me, I'm terrified because I see this is coming. I'm excited. At that time, Michael the Great Prince, who's that? If you don't know for sure, go read Questions on Doctrine. There's a chapter on who is Michael. 
It's really cool. At that time, Michael the great prince, Jesus Christ, my friends, who protects his people. What does Jesus do when the end times come? He scares the socks off of us. He allows the devil to come and scare us to death to see if we're really on God's side, right? At that time, Michael the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, God's people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, how do you get in the book? Accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You don't do that in terror. There is no way that any God can scare you enough to make you love Him. God loves us so much that we love Him. Fear is never part of that. Jesus never said, be afraid of me. He always says, come. Come. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects his people, will arise. There will be a time of trouble that you could not even imagine. It's never been one like that from the beginning till today. But at that time, his people, everyone whose name is written in the book, will be delivered. That's what happens when God cuts it short. Deliverance happens. Now, I promised you last night that I'd tell you a camp meeting story. I ran out of time last night. I ran out of time tonight, but I'm going to tell you anyway. It's not a good story. You're not going to like it. Uh, But it's an honest story. I was speaking at a camp meeting in Oregon under a giant tent in the village of Gladstone. And there was a fellow who'd been harassing me all week. It was Thursday night. I'd been, this was in the old days when they did camp meeting from now until forever. Now we just do forever. Um, and he was a pain. And is that fair for a pastor to say out loud? You know, I love working with people. But some people just grate on your nerves. Every night he would come up and he would say, You know, Elder Dirksen, I don't think you used that text right. I think, you know, and, and he would say, or he would say, You know, in the illustration you used about Ethiopia, you didn't pronounce it right. Or he, every time I was anywhere, he would criticize. He was just a thorn in my flesh. And the frustrating thing was, I'd spoken here before, and five years earlier when I'd been here, he was a pain. (laughs) And so now the pain is worse. And there's no antidote for it, except I'm a pastor, so I'm going to be nice. Thursday night, we decided to hold a communion service. You may have been here. Uh... We put the men in the basement of the cafeteria. We put the men in some, or the women upstairs, I think, in a place that's nicer. Always happens. <laughs> but I'm the pastor guy, and so I'm up here, right here. 
and um, comes time to separate for the ordinances of humility. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I just, I'm hot, I'm tired, I'm frustrated, things aren't going right, I'm, the guy is standing right back there and making faces at me, and, and I just am ticked. And I'm trying to be this pastor guy who's being really nice. Isn't it wonderful we get to go now and perform the ordinances of humility? And I want to beat him up. (laughs) And so you all stand up and go. And you wash there and you wash there and wherever else we had washing happen. And, And all good things are happening. And I'm avoiding going. And so I've slipped out here back behind to make sure that we're ready, that everything is in place for the really cool way that we're going to do the, the uh, bread and the juice. And I just, somebody taps me on the shoulder. Elder Dirksen? Yes. No. <laughs> Elder Dirksen, may I serve you? No. Why, sure, that'd be wonderful. So I curse God all the way to the cafeteria. I go down to the basement, and I'm saying, Why, Lord? It is, the ordinance of humility. Okay, I'll do my best, all right? I get in. He has already set a bucket it's got water in it, a towel. He kneels before me, unties my shoes, helps me take off my socks, takes my hands in his, and he says, Elder Dirksen, I have hated you for years. <laughs> and I said, I know. <laughs> and I think I've hated you back. And he said, you talk an awful lot about God's love. You don't talk enough about his law. You you talk about grace as if it's something that's free. And I didn't understand that until the message you preached tonight. And now it all of a sudden all makes sense. And I want to ask you to forgive me for being such an awful person in your life. Can you do that? I want to live where you live, in God's house. I cried. He cried. We were late coming back. And when I knelt down in front of him and untied his shoes, helped him take off his socks, washed his feet, I first put my hands in his, and the two of us cried together. I didn't pray much right then, but then I said these words, God, forgive me for being so stuck on me that I missed you in the face of my brother. That man hugged me that night and I hugged him 
Now, why do I share that story? Look at the three stories I've shared in the two texts. That's not the normal way I, I, I like to preach, but I wanted to really catch you with three different thoughts tonight. What's the, what's the message in Joel's story? God is after each of us just like he was after Joel and Trinidad and Jose and Nelson, and he's talking to us. Sometimes he uses voices we recognize, and sometimes he uses voice we've never heard. But he's always talking to us because he has a plan for our lives. And then I gave you the, the story of Jack and, you know, Don and the crowd and a water tank. God's plan for our lives, I guarantee you, is different than our plan for our lives. Always. But it's the process that's different, not the destination. You hear? The process was, God wanted to put a a spring in the tank, not rain. Rain would have caused a problem for the farmer. I don't know what it was, but he put a spring in the tank instead. I didn't give him that permission. None of us had. Lord, make it rain. And he looks around at all the angels and says, what am I going to do with him? Can you get one of them to say, put a spring in the tank? (laughs) Nobody would do it except the little Mormon girl who was part of our prayer service who said, when are you guys going to quit being afraid of God and start loving him? Let God do it. His way. And then I took you to the text, the two texts. Remember what they say? In the midst of all the stuff you're afraid of, God says, you don't need to worry. (laughs) You don't need to worry at all. Because I'm going to cut it short to fill every room in my house. And I'm going to do that by having Michael, the great prince, who protects his people, stand up. In the midst of this chaos that is so bad, the world's never seen anything like it. And when he stands up, his people, those whose names are written on the book, those who've said, not I, but Christ in every way exalted. Not I, but Christ in every word and deed. Not I, but Christ. For it is Christ in me that's the hope of glory. It's not me doing good stuff. So Jesus says, hey, look at him, he's mine. Isn't he cool? No, it's so that the universe looks and says, look at him. He looks just like Jesus. I'll bet he's got Jesus inside him. Will be, what's the last word in the text? Delivered. It's the best news I know. God's plan always ends up with deliverance. You want to know about the second coming? Deliverance. You want to know about the plagues? Deliverance. You want to know about the time of trouble? Deliverance. You want to know the coming economic disaster? Deliverance. (coughs) There's no limit to what God can do. When it's His plan, His way, His deliverance. Let's pray.
Lord God, simple request for you tonight. Take my life. I cannot give it to you. It is already your property. But take it. Raise me into the high and holy atmosphere where the rich current of your love can flow through my soul. Amen. Amen. What's the last word? <laughs>